The reading is Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul had said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Week last Sunday there was, uh, uh, as is there is every Sunday morning at ten past eight, uh, the morning service, and it comes from various churches throughout the country, commemorating certain events, secular and sacred, and so on. And last Sunday was uh, 60 years of the development of the hospice movement, and in the course of that, the chaplain spoke about not simply now people dying with dignity who have a terminal illness, but ending their final days with purpose and uh, tracing the Christian influence of the hospice movement. And they have an acronym which spells TEAM, and uh, TEAM represents Together Each Achieve More. 
Uh, Hannah worked in the hospice movement as a, a conclusion to her nursing days. And um, this whole idea of together, uh, patient and medics, going at their level with this sense of togetherness, each achieving more in perhaps the most stressful time of life uh, that uh, people can know in this side of eternity. What you have with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and others, this great gospel movement, and the acronym could well be the same, not simply the ending of life, but the beginning of new and spiritual life, together each achieve more. And that's the genius of the church. We tend to see it as a building, as a movement, or denominations and traditions. But essentially, it is a fellowship of people who are resolved to covenant, to worship together, to stand together, serve and give and pray and love and forgive and keep pressing on. And that's a very wonderful thing. And what we have in this series in the book of Acts is the way that God continues to open up these doors of opportunity. If you were to read, of course, in chapter, the end of 15 and the beginning of 16 and chapter 14, a whole series of frustrated negative guidance. They wanted to go here. They couldn't. They wanted to do this and they can't. They prayed about that and it didn't happen. And that happens to us as well. And yet, throughout that, now God sovereignly opens doors. And as a group of believers, they are a team. And together each achieve more than they could if they were simply on their own. I'm sure it's true today that the devil does isolate us. He divides us and conquers us and frustrates our endeavours. So what we have here in these 15 verses is this sustained enthusiasm, you can call it that, zeal, drive, motivation, as characteristic of these early Apostles. I guess a characteristic of a person who is fully alive, whether it's at home in the kitchen or in committee meetings, deacons and elders and others, whether it's secular or sacred, whether it's in private or public, whether it's preaching or praising this whole idea of being truly alive in whatever way Christian people either collectively or individually express their faith and some are more reserved, some are more demonstrative that's not the point how they do it the thing is that they should do it fully alive human beings it's a very wonderful thing to be part of that But alive in this sense, in our external and our internal senses. Uh, Socrates said this, that the unreflected life isn't worth living. So I say that to you for you to reflect not on others now, where you might think there are certain people who are rather boring and so on, but yourself, myself. That there is, whilst there is a morbid introspection where people are constantly looking at themselves, there is a very productive introspection. 
that the unreflected life isn't worth living. And in a sense, this liveliness, not only internally and externally, but in this sense of my will and my heart. And uh, in, in a book that, uh, this is what I'm quoting from, by John Powell, the book called Fully Human, says this, let me just quote it to you. The fullness of life, he writes, must not be misrepresented as the proverbial bowl of cherries. Fully alive people, precisely because they are fully alive, obviously experience failure as well as success. They are open to both pain and pleasure. They have many questions and some answers. They cry and laugh. They dream and hope. The only thing that remains alien to their experience of life are passivity and apathy. The curse of spiritual progress, whether collectively or individually. And what you have here is together each achieve more. And we need each other more than we realize, even if we might find one another rather irritating from time to time. And in Acts chapter 17, and indeed if you were to read back, you would see how there were tensions and quarrels and differences. And they didn't go away and start another church. They resolved to know God's forgiveness and see each other's strength as a means of making them the people that they ought to be. So we need to say to each other, together, each achieve more. We need each other, not just for our personal gain, but for the glory of God. So in Acts chapter 17, I just want to say two things here with that sort of introduction, and it's this. They're following what's called the Ignatian Way, and Paul and Silas now travel some hundred miles from Philippi and come to Thessalonica. And this is the first of, of three cities, as you'll see if you were to read Acts chapter 17. And just to look now at the response of the gospel. Uh, we see, we've looked at uh, Thessalonica, that was the first, and the second is Berea, and the third we look at next week, which is very different. And it's interesting just to see the different responses in um, Athens. Well, let's look at these two very quickly. First of all, uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, the method and message, and true to form as often is the way, resisting, resisting. Now, here's an interesting thing, and I'd like you to stay with me on this. Paul's sustained enthusiasm, which was our introduction, in verses 2 and 3, how is that, how does that rubber hit the road? Okay. Not just a personality thing or everything's all right. Not just that. That may be a factor. Those do kick in. But more than that. In verses 2 and 3, if you read it carefully, you see these ingredients. The gospel is communicated in this three-pronged approach. And it should be yours and it should be mine. The first. Verse 2. That it was his custom, you see there. To go to the synagogue. Why would he do that? Well, he was a Jew. And uh, people would read the set reading of the day. Like Jesus did. So, 
on three Sabbaths. So Paul and Silas just had three weeks to be in Thessalonica where they left in embryo a church. People who love Jesus. And these three-pronged approach is very interesting. You can do, you, you, and the courses are good, whether it's uh, Alpha or Christian Explored or whatever. Those are good. But here, here is what it's about. First of all, he reasoned. Have you, could you do that? You, you open the Bible, you're in conversations, maybe you're in a cafe or a pub or church or a, where, wherever, it doesn't matter. And you're able to reason from the Bible. I think there are some people who have been listening to sermons perhaps for 20 years and maybe it's the church hasn't encouraged them or maybe they haven't connected with this. But look, to, he, he, verse 2 it says he reasoned with them which is to, to dialogue, to, to engage, engage the mind, to resolve Issues. Clearly, people would ask all sorts of questions from their background, pagan background or religious background or, no, or nothing at all. And, and to reason involves that dialogue to resolve, to listen and to respond. Literally, it means this, this idea of reasoning is to carefully relate the Bible to people and the people to the Bible. That is a good thing to do. Of course, it's the task of a preacher. That's what I'm trying to do now. But... but Paul is doing that in this engaging, connecting with the mind, and using, bringing the people to the Bible and the Bible to people. And what's he doing it for? Well, each time he's pointing to the Messiah, the one who is to come. And the Jews would know about that. They know about that today. But here is the, the sovereign Lord. He has come. And so what is Paul doing here? He's doing something that perhaps we might, some evangelicals might have lost their nerve a little here. And it's this. He's demonstrating absolute confidence in his terms of reference, the Bible. He reasoned with them. Secondly, look at verse 3, and he explained... Let's just uh, see what we do. So, in the synagogue on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, that is, explaining. To, to explain means um, to open up. It's like the, 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 the craftsman and the apprentice. He says, let me explain to you. Let me illustrate. Let me show you here what, what I'm expecting of you. In other words, learning from experience. It is the idea, explaining means to open up, to open up. To discover for yourself. We've got some references here, look, uh, and we look at them very quickly. Just look at 1 Corinthians 15. You see the way that Paul did, does this. Just let's have a quick look, uh, just, to see, just to illustrate this in other parts of the Bible. Um, this is the theme now is the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 1 to 4. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So he's already told them. Now he's reminding them of what he did previously. Okay? What I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. Make sure about that. It's this gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
If you hold firmly to what, how strange, the very thing that is being eroded, even in churches, if you hold on to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. That's a very powerful thing. That's part of explaining. But I think the best illustration of this, and you've got it there, look in John John chapter 4. This is quite a wonderful um, example here. You'll remember it's it's a Samaritan woman, Jews and Samaritans, just like the Jews today and and the Palestinians have nothing to do with each other. There's a sort of a love-hate relationship, and very little love. Here's this woman who's had a a torrid experience of broken relationships, at least four broken marriages. She's cohabiting and so on. And here it is, her paths cross with the Lord Jesus. That's that's the context. And um, she goes back to her people. Don't forget what I'm doing now is saying this, reasoning and explaining. Here's this Samaritan woman, not like these Jewish people with a Bible background. She hasn't got one. So, Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Do you hear that? Because of what the woman of Samaria said. And what was her testimony? (laughs) He told me everything I ever did. There was a lot to tell. It wasn't all good. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And because of his words, many more Um, became believers. Now, this is the pivotal point, verse 42. They said to the woman, the woman took the, the gospel to them, okay? We no longer believe just because of what you said, you gave your testimony. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the savior of the world. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. You couldn't have a better illustration of that, of what it means to explain. Within, within the moral decline among relationships and the polarization of communities and religion and, and opinions. Wonderful example of explaining. Reasoning, explaining. And then thirdly, there's that other word, proving. Not being clever, but proving. In other words, and you see that if you come back to Acts chapter 17, proving in this sense... Um, giving his experience, but placing his personal experience alongside the Bible. You see, you, you can quote from the Bible, people are not very impressed. They say, oh, well, you've got the Bible, they've got the Quran, they've got this, they've got that. Who's to know? Oh, it's just an opinion. No, no, no. Yes, we know the Bible is the book of all books, but they don't. So, It's no good just thumping the Bible. But placing his personal experience alongside the scripture, and then, verse 4, persuading. In other words, and this is a very important thing. It's an important thing for any preacher and for any living Christian who wants to talk about Jesus. It's this. You know, that's what the Bible says. That's not very clever. But this is what it means. And do you know? This is what it could mean for you. And this is what it could mean for you tonight. Now, now that would be something in discussion with, with people. That's what he's saying, proving. It's like saying, you know, um, I've got the medicine. Now you need to take it. You need to apply it. Don't leave it on the shelf. won't do any good there. And here is gospel presentation. Clear, consistent, 
and personally costly. Personally costly. There's a reference there. We haven't got time to look at it. 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 2, verses 2 to 8, where Paul says, We came to you, uh, and this idea of weakness, trembling, much fear, and we were harassed and troubled, and so on. But notice, like, like magnets, some are drawn to the center and others are repelled into the circumference. Isn't it strange? In, in the same people, the same message, the same method. We can have all the, uh, the modern approaches and all that sort of thing. But Jesus is the epicenter. And his gospel will draw some and repel others. And so you see in verse 4 and 5, uh, coming back to uh, 1 Thessalonians, sorry, uh, Acts 17 and uh, this coming to Thessalonica. In verse 4, for example, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. I guarantee you, if you were to check what would happen in Abidjan and in Jos and various other places, you would find that some people have stirred up a, a crowd and run amok on, on churches and people out of sheer badness. And it's the devil's work to stir up um, uh, people to provoke and to resist the, the cause of the gospel. And so we've seen in those pictures from uh, Nigeria, you s- just last week, uh, from the Egypt, the three very large Coptic churches burned to the ground. And Christianity was in, in, in Egypt long before Islam came. And Iraq, could you imagine what it would be like? We're here tonight that I would be taken out and in front of you shot. Think of that. That's not fairy tale. That, that is happening. And you know, we could apply that to all the, 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 the discussions going on about this very small little extension to this building, and it's just a flea bite, isn't it? It's not even, it's nothing. And we can be rather preoccupied with lesser things. And, and one of the things about praying for the world and seeing those pictures helps us to put things in perspective. And in some parts of the world tonight, Christians are accused of high treason, falsely. It's very interesting. We need a long-term view of the church. And uh, I never forget uh, um, David's, Dr. David Smith was taking um, ten uh, students in the college in Wales going through their Masters of Theology. Six of them were Koreans. And um, they had been doing uh, church history. And they discovered that a hundred years to uh, the, uh, 1905 to 2005 that there was a, a couple, a young couple, sent out from Glamorganshaft, the Welsh revival, to go to Korea to serve, to bring the gospel. And they were there less than nine months and killed. Can you imagine their parents? Imagine the church. A hundred years later, almost to the year, Now, Korea, up to 40-45% profess to be Christian. Some churches, one church is a quarter of a million in size. 
Some churches are tens of thousands in size. But if you looked at it merely short term, as many of us do, we'd say, what a terrible waste. Why is a young couple taken out and killed like that? What's that about? What is God doing? We need to repent of our short-sightedness, don't we? Really do. And we need to say to him, look, I don't understand this, but I trust you. It's all you can have. Well, secondly, very quickly, we come to Berea, verses 10 to 15, and there again, the heading is the same, the method and the message, except here, strangely, they're more receptive. Whereas before, people were largely resisting, now people are largely receiving. And uh, it's an interesting thing that if you were to uh, slightly, not read between the lines, but put all the facts together like a jigsaw, you'll see that Under cover of night, Paul and Silas left the city for their own sake. And they headed for Berea, just about another 45 miles um, on the Aegean Way. Now, it doesn't appear that Timothy is with them. There's no mention of him anyway. Later, he joined Paul in Athens, as we will see next week. It may be, and if you were to read carefully, that from verse 9, that they were put on bail... There was this civic uh, riot, or whatever you say about the Roman Empire. It had law and order, much of which has influenced um, uh, the legislation in our country to this very day. So, they put on bail to say, don't come back. But Timothy is a Gentile, not a Jew. He wasn't there. So, he could go back, and he did go back. And if in Korea tonight... Strangely, as those uh, early missionaries were killed, the flower of youth, what a waste. And Paul and Silas are rejected at the risk of their lives. And God is planting a church. It's a very humbling thing, isn't it? Very humbling. And we really shouldn't be short-term in the way that we think about the difficulties and challenges of church life. But here Paul meets a different group. They they, they are keen, they are interested, they are receptive. And so you see in verse 11, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. How do you know what I'm saying is true? Is it merely human persuasion, the power of personality? No, they say that, okay, yeah, all right, but I'm going, to, I'm going to find out for myself. I'm going to read my Bible. Some people say all sorts of terrible things, and some people tell lies about the Bible. Some people distort the Bible. How do you know? Well, read it for yourself, and ask God to speak to you through it. That's what they did. It's a very wonderful thing. And throughout church history, you know, subsequently, the Bereans were known as people who loved the Bible. Because they loved Jesus Christ. And they were able to discern truth from error. They weren't gullible. They weren't naive. Uh, May I just apply this? Put a mental note. Next time some of these Jehovah Witnesses might come to your door. And if they do, don't just say you're a Baptist. Don't just say you go to church. Say, Say, I love the Bible because I love Jesus Christ. And when I read his word, he speaks to me. He tells me about my sin. He points me to the cross. There I'm saved. That would be a very good discussion. 
rather than to talk about some of the fringe things that they seem to major on. And some of these people are very sincere and have a very high regard for the Bible. How dangerous it is to blindly accept what people say and teach, whether they knock our doors or preach from our pulpits. Dangerous without referring to the scriptures personally. And so in verse uh, 12, many of the Jews believed. Isn't that lovely? Yes, the veil was taken off their eyes. This is the Messiah. He's the Christ. The long-awaited Messiah. He's the one. They believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. They saw that this Jesus is a saviour. Let's try to very quickly round this, this off. God's word brings clarity. God's word brings commitment. You see those two things in, in, in Berea, in verses 11 and 12, and you see the same thing in Thessalonica 2 to 4. But conversely, the devil's word, and he's got a word, he brings confusion and conflict. And they are polarized. They are opposites. God's word brings clarity and commitment. The devil brings confusion and conflict. And you see both there in parallel. We haven't got time to look that. You'll see it in verse 5 and verse 13. And in these two, these two cities, if they teach us anything at all, surely, as we apply them to ourselves here tonight, surely, fully alive people don't always have things easy. When I became a Christian, I'm glad that the people told me, you may well have a tough time ahead. People who think I'm becoming a Christian to do God a favor because I am the center of the universe. You won't last very long. You could blame the church. You could say it's boring. You can do all those things. But you won't last very long unless you are committing your life to Jesus Christ. God's word brings clarity, commitment. The devil brings confusion and conflict. There they are, side by side. And in these, these two cities, if they teach us anything at all, that fully alive people don't always have things easy. Therefore, two quick applications. The first, being resolute is at the heart of anything that you accomplish. If it's easy come, it's easy go. If you are resolute in your resolve to serve Jesus Christ, not simply filling in time, then you will accomplish things. But if you're always keeping your options open, sitting on the fence, then mediocrity will be the hallmark of your life. We need courage. We need courage to stay the course in spite of life's storms and trials. But just picture yourself on an open sea and you've got the instruments and you know what your destiny is to be. Let's suppose you had a moment of crisis. And you think, I'm not sure about these instruments. I'll do my own thing. Or I'll question them. You just go around in circles. It could be life-threatening. 
We need confidence in God's word to steer an even course and to be resolute in order to achieve that. And finally, it is good to be forewarned that both rejection of the message or, hopefully, reception is to be expected when the gospel is presented. Now, what is it to be? Well, that's all about reasoning, explaining, proving, demonstrating. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ. He is Lord. He is the Savior. He's the one who deserves the best that we can bring him because he gave us his all. And through him, we have forgiveness. 